This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an Irish independent podcast. Just to flag that today's episode contains details some people may find distressing. Today on the Indo Daily, the words of a reclusive husband and wife, their mysterious deaths, and the loneliness in their final days. For 18 months, a couple lay dead at their home in Tipperary. An investigation is underway after the bodies of two people, a man and a woman, were found at a house in County... When their mummified remains were discovered at their home in June 2022, it sent shockwaves around the Clonmel community. You often see these things in the news. The last thing you expect is to be reporting from your own village. Now, exactly what happened, retired sea captain Nicholas Smith and his wife, Hilary, was still no clearer at an inquest in April of this year. State pathologist Dr Linda Mulligan said there was significant decomposition to both bodies and they were likely to have died within a short time of each other. The coroner, Joseph Kelly, recorded open verdicts in both cases. But today, the Indo-Daily can reveal new details into the mystery behind their deaths. We have a letter written by Hillary and it appears from this letter that she was resigned to dying. In it, she said, it was so sad and cruel to end this way. I'm Siobhan Maguire, and I'm joined by Irish Independent Legal Affairs Editor Shane Phelan to hear more. It was apparent that they had decided to withdraw from society, having told people they were leaving the area. The close-knit community had no idea they continued to live in the house. Beautiful couple now, you know what I mean? Uh, I never heard a bad word from them or to them or anything, you know, so look, just... It's a sad day today, but I mean, they're probably being... Shane, this story is extremely tragic. Can you give us a quick recap of what we learned on that day of the discovery? I suppose, Siobhan, we can't even start discussing this case without mentioning the P word, the pandemic. This all happened at the height of the pandemic, them passing away in their home. A lonely time for so many of us, Shane. Indeed, and a time when people, a lot of people were isolating and isolated. Gardy called to the house to do a welfare check due to concerns expressed by some local people. It had been taught that the couple who living there, Nicholas and Hilary Smith, had moved to France. But over time, when nobody moved into the house and people also noticed that the couple's cars were still out the back, concerns were raised and Gardy called to the house and uh, uh, made quite grim discoveries inside. Nicholas Smith lay dead in his bed. But there were food trays around. 
There was bowls of food and a kettle in the hallway outside the bedroom where uh, Nicholas's body was found. And uh, Hilary Smith was found uh, dead in, in the living room, dressed in her pyjamas and a nightgown and wrapped in blankets. Sounds absolutely awful, you know, that you could have a couple die in this way on their own. Nicholas and, and Hilary uh, Smith were, were um, originally from England and, and I suppose there weren't that m- many details about them to emerge just at that time. But as time wore on, Gardy made inquiries and then we had an inquest and, and more began to emerge about their background and history. And uh, Hilary um, was a, a hairdresser from Hull, Nicholas. He uh, was a, a Naval Academy graduate from Norwich and um, they married in Cambridge in 1967. Um, there's a local newspaper report about how after the ceremony they flew back to uh, Nicholas Smith's ship in Rotterdam for a, a seaborne honeymoon and, and and off they went sailing to the Far East. And um, it's known that they, they lived in Hong Kong for a long time, uh, perhaps three decades leaving there in 1997 and settling in a place called Leeming in Western Australia. And then they also lived for a period in York in England before moving to Ireland in 2006. They lived in County Tipperary and moved from where they were living to Clonine near Clonmel in 2009. And that's where they were found. You have a couple in their 70s and 80s at the time of their death. So they were obviously very well travelled. They had lived that life outside of their native country. And then we had this inquest in April of this year, Shane, and it was an open verdict. But we did hear that when they were discovered, there were signs of crockery being smashed, a TV being smashed. Yeah, the picture that emerged from that inquest was, I suppose, was, would have been at odds with this idea of them being this well-travelled couple. In fact, it turns out they were quite reclusive and had very limited dealings, you know, with their neighbours, say for one or two. They, they wouldn't really have spoken to people and people wouldn't have known them. They kept themselves to themselves, to use the, the well-worn phrase. And a lot of unexplained things about this Questions arising from what the Gardaí found when they went into the house, like the, the smashed crockery. We have no idea why that happened. It was a TV which fell or was knocked off a stand. We have no idea what happened there either. Because she was in an armchair with a heater still on. Yeah, and she had a flashlight in each of her uh, uh, dressing gown pockets. Look, it's all very strange and begs all sorts of questions. We don't know who died first. That's another a question that could not be answered. The open verdict from the inquest was recorded because despite a very intensive investigation, the Guardian weren't able to exactly get to the bottom of all of the circumstances involved here. And indeed, the coroner involved said that people who could answer the questions were no longer with us. It's so mysterious, Shane, and that brings us up to now. And you had two articles in the Irish Independent last Friday and on Saturday that gives us a little bit more of an insight into what happened. Talk to me about this letter. One of the most intriguing aspects of this case was the discovery of a torn up letter in in rubbish in the house. Um, It was pieced back together by uh, Garda handwriting experts. And... It doesn't solve 
the mystery, Siobhan, but it does give us an insight into the state of mind of the couple at the time. The letter is actually signed, uh, Nicholas and, and Hilary Smith, but it's clear from reading it that it's actually written by Hilary Smith. And it was written on the 24th of December 2020, so Christmas Eve. It was seven days after the last time either of them are, are known to have made an excursion out of the house. Um, has to be remembered that this was at the height of the pandemic. People would have been staying at home and so on. And in this letter, she claims that elderly people were at risk from physicians and she says that she wished they had never set foot in Ireland. It's clear from it they had big issues with healthcare available to them in Ireland. They distrusted it. They distrusted doctors. The letter name checks uh, Dr. Vernon Coleman. Now, he's a, a former general practitioner from England, but he's also a, a noted conspiracy theorist who, um, you know, if, if you look the guy up, he's, there's any number of conspiracy theories associated with him. But I think the one that is probably most pertinent to this case, having, having read this letter, is this idea he had that the person most likely to kill someone is actually their doctor. Uh, he's, he's written a book about this. And in the letter, Hilary Smith describes him as a courageous man who saw what so many people missed. So maybe there was things preying on their minds which may have stopped them from getting help when they were on their own in their, their time of need in the house. Maybe not. We're in the realms of speculation here. What we do know is that uh, they both had health issues in Ireland. Most significant of these was uh, Nicholas Smith. About nine months before this letter was written, he was admitted to hospital with chest pains and he was triaged as being, as being very urgent. So he was seen in the A&E, but he discharged himself on the same day and he refused further uh, medical examination or treatment. Now, now somebody, you know, with chest pains and uh, would, would later, I suppose, be confirmed at the inquest that he had severe coronary artery disease. For someone to discharge themselves and, and to refuse further medical examination, then you'd wonder why why they did that. And, and maybe it was because of these, these feelings, this distrust of the hospital system. We also know from the inquest that he had been taking antidepressants over a period of time as well. His wife, Hilary Smith, would also have had engagement with the health services. She had rheumatoid arthritis and hypertension. Indeed, one of the, the neighbours would have pointed out that any time she was seen as a passenger in, in, the, in the car, she had a blanket on her lap, which would have suggested she had health issues. There's a very curious aspect to all of this as well, Shane, because the couple were getting ready to settle their affairs. They were. I mean, they had sent a letter to, to a neighbour in late 2020 outlining this plan to move to France and to sell to people from England. And that December, Nicholas Smith, he arranged for the cancellation of their waste service from January the 1st. Their Sky television connection was also cancelled. And on December 14th that month, so around the time they were last seen, a two-line note was sent via email to the, their doctor's surgery saying they don't, didn't require their services any longer because they were moving to France. And that same day, an email was sent on post uh, setting up a mail minder. So this is the, 
service that if, if, if you're away that they'll stop the mail from being delivered for uh, a period of time and so the mail would have been kept until February of the uh, the following year and they also made a, a series of donations amounting to about 16,000 euros so not not inconsiderable sums to various charities so definitely a sense that they were settling their affairs or, or, or getting ready to, to move or, or something like that but on the flip side of that, the guards found absolutely no evidence that they actually were moving to France. Yeah, that's very interesting, Shane. And there was another curious aspect um, concerning the locks. Yeah, so so when the guards came to the house, you know, they, they, they had to get the assistance of a locksmith to gain entry. And uh, it was later discovered that was glue had been poured on the inside hinges of the back door and also inside the cylinder recess of the locks to the front and the back doors. So, and I mean, look, we can only speculate here, but was this a situation where they just didn't want anyone coming in? We don't know, but it is another very, very strange aspect to this case. You mentioned earlier about the ailments that both Nicholas and Hillary were enduring at the time the letter was written. So their attitude towards the healthcare system suggests that that they don't feel they were getting the care they needed or required. Um, and of course, it has to be borne in mind that while they had their concerns with regards to the healthcare system in Ireland, there was no evidence produced at the inquest to suggest that they'd received anything other than competent healthcare when they were in Ireland. I mean, Shane, from what you wrote last Friday, for example, about this letter... It gives you a good insight into the mindset of Hillary at the time, as you say. But you can't deny that this woman was obviously in a very sad, very lonely, very worrying place. Totally. You only have to look at the first few lines of the letter where she says, this is not your ordinary letter. And that she says she's weak due to lack of food. She's writing with arteritic hands. So somebody who's in a very kind of a distressed place, I think, at the time this letter was written. And um, we also know, I suppose, from the inquest and, and other inquiries that to a certain extent they had a lonely life, but they also seemed to have cut themselves off from family, for example. They couple claimed to be childless and that wasn't entirely true. Um, Actually, I'm going to interrupt you here because this is the second explosive story you revealed over the weekend. There is a secret son. Yeah, they'd always told locals, you know, that they had, they had no children. And this may have been true in, in relation to Nicholas, but it wasn't true in relation to Hillary. She actually had a son several years before she and uh, Nicholas were married, uh, a son called Michael. And she left Michael to be uh, raised by her mother, so Michael's grandmother. And they had little or no contact throughout Michael's life. Indeed, very, very sad for him too. He never got to know his mother. And he ended up being tracked down by genealogists after the discovery of the bodies. He lives in England and DNA tests were done and uh, they proved that he was Hillary's son. Michael's 61 and you had a chat with him. I did. Michael's an extraordinary uh, guy. He He's had a tough life. He's had health issues. He was brought up, I suppose, in a, in a one-bedroom flat by his maternal grandmother, uh, Lily. And 
they had limited means. She was divorced and, and worked as a typist for the local council. And he said that his upbringing was not the easiest. His own life would have been beset by health issues, including anxiety and depression. This was particularly so when his, his grandmother died in 1990, kind of leaving him without any family at all. And he spoke about his memories of his mother. The only faint memory that he had was about being in a boat with her as a very young child on a lake in a park and as she had her arm around him and he said that apart from that he couldn't recollect any other memory but he did say, you know, he remembered it it was happy times in the park. That sounds like a very powerful, vivid memory and in your conversation with Michael he then goes on to talk further about his mother and and he's very forgiving, isn't he? He is very forgiving. So like apart from that memory, the only other contact that he can recall was, you know, at the age of seven or eight, he got a present sent from Hong Kong. This was a, a Chinese style dressing gown, a paper knife and a radio cassette player. And there was a note on it saying to Michael from someone who loves you. And then... When he was around 15, uh, a letter arrived out of the blue from his mother saying she wanted him to go and live with her and Nicholas in Hong Kong. But this was never followed up on. So in all of those years, you know, he has very, very limited contact from his mother, didn't know her at all. But he's so forgiving and so generous you know, in, in, in his thoughts about his mother. Um, he said that if he could speak to her now, he would say that he forgives her for not being uh, with him through the special times in his life. He said that he would tell her that he held no grudges towards her, showed no hatred, and that no doubt she had her reasons for uh, for doing what she did, for leaving him with her mother and going off, and, and I suppose traveling the world with her husband. He said he felt numb and shocked by the deaths and I suppose the circumstances of the deaths as well. He'd always wondered what his mother was doing and also, you know, her husband, Nicholas. And he only learned of the deaths after being contacted by the genealogist. Yeah, this often happens or happens more often than people realise is is that you you can have people die and there can be issues as to, as to whether or not you know there's any relatives or it, it can appear there's no relatives but nearly always there is a relative and there are special services such as such as the one involved in this case called Erin International and they can go off and find people and they're, they're quite skilled at it he's very he was very grateful to them for I suppose making the connection and he spoke to me a lot about his mother even though like he didn't know her but he said that you know he, he didn't really understand why she left but he he didn't want the public to think of her as a bad person he said there might have been rules or regulations at the time which meant that children couldn't go on ships and with Nicholas being a captain of the ship you know that was their life and she was following him so that may have been something he also said something that really struck me and that was that he said he didn't believe he was abandoned and this was because he was left in the hands of, of his grandmother, who he described as a loving, caring lady. So Michael is, is, is really a remarkable guy. And for Nicholas, there was a brother tracked down as well. Yeah. Nicholas Smith's brother, Andrew, he, he didn't want to be interviewed for, for my articles. 
which is fine. Um, you know, he, he'll have his reasons for that. He did provide a statement to the coroner, though, and uh, that kind of shed some light on the relationship, or I suppose the lack of a relationship he had with his brother. He, he said that he was born six years after his brother, and they weren't close, partly because of the age difference. And uh, he said that after his brother's naval, naval training, he only saw him every few years when he was home on leave for a day or two. And he said it, it seemed glamorous and his brothers, you know, had lots of money to spend, but it struck him that it, it must have been lonely as well. He said Nicholas always visited their parents when he was home and they didn't really stay in contact apart from that. It wasn't a conscious decision, he said. He said they just weren't close. And the last time he saw Nicholas was in the aftermath of his father's death in, in 1986, there was some tidying up to do uh, regarding a will and and uh, the brother Andrew, he was the administrator so that they had to, to deal with that. And he said that that was the last time he met Nicholas or spoke to him. We didn't call each other or write. I did not know he had moved to Ireland. We just drifted apart. And that struck me as being very sad as well. He just had no idea. He had no idea where his brother was in the entire world. and He had no idea his brother had died and he too was, I suppose, tracked down in the inquiries that were made after their deaths. Shane, do we know any more about exactly when the couple died? It wasn't possible to determine when exactly either of them died or, or who died first. I suppose all we really knew was that there was uh, the last time either of them had been out was on December 14th, 2020. And, and this was because a carton of milk had been bought and, and uh, a, a bank card used uh, to buy it. But the, uh, the last activity on Nicholas Smith's phone would have been a series of text messages sent on December 30th, 2020. So six days after this letter was sent and uh, the number that which was texted was not registered to any subscriber and it, it no longer appears to be in use. So there's another element of mystery there. We don't know who he was texting or what he was texting about. We also know that at at least one of the couple is likely to have been alive as late as January the 8th, 2021. Gardy uh, recovered a Kindle, an Amazon Kindle from the house, and a screenshot was actually taken on the Kindle on that date. And it was the start of a chapter in a book, and um, uh, it, it appears to have been a book called The Light Between Oceans. It's a novel by M.L. Steadman. It's about a childless couple who find uh, a baby girl in a washed-up dinghy and decide to raise her uh, as their own. So it's just another interesting detail, I suppose, in this. But it does suggest that at least one of them may still have been alive uh, on January the 8th, 2021. Um, there's no evidence to suggest that they were alive beyond that point. And my thanks to Irish Independence Legal Affairs editor Shane Phelan for joining me. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode was produced and researched by myself with sound by Niall McMonagall. Archive clips from RTE and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.